think Follies is about a world in which people are pretty much drunk all the time. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Welcome to the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Nathan. I'm Peter, and Nathan has been down a Follies rabbit hole for <laughs> the past few days getting oh, ready goodness. for today's conversation. You know, I, I was reminded this weekend that I do this every five or seven years. I uh, get re-obsessed with Follies. The last time it happened was I was um, I was dating a, I was dating a young man and he did not know the works of Stephen Sondheim, but talked to some friends of mine. I want to do something special for Nathan for Valentine's Day. And his friends said there was a new production of Follies on Broadway with Bernadette Peters. I was flying to New York to visit this this person who I later married, and he bought me tickets to Follies. Took me to Follies, I which I mean, like, let's just, I was gonna say, let's just flag for the moment, like, Follies is not a Valentine's Day show. In fact, you could, <laughs> you could, you could trace the success and ultimately the failure of our of our marriage by the fact that we went to see Follies for Valentine's Day, which is a little bit of a setup. Uh, but James became obsessed with Sondheim in general, but with really with Follies. I mean, like, it it really drew him in, and so kind of drew me in too. And we got like super. We collected all the cast recordings. We would sit up late at night comparing. You know, do you like Diana Rigg doing, you know, Abbott underneath? Do you like Jan Maxwell doing, you know, like all the different kind of production choices that can be made with Follies. Um, I have very strong opinions on cast albums <laughs> and which ones are better. You know, whose who's version of I'm Still Here is the definitive version. Um, I, I, Follies is a show that I rediscover every five years. And I, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is a way of saying part of why I think Follies is, I don't know if I would call it my favorite Sondheim show, but I feel like it's the Sondheim show that keeps, keeps coming alive for me. You know, I keep coming back to it every five years and thinking I've never, I've never noticed this before. This show is about, this show is about me. Um, every time I come to it, I'm like, oh, this show is about me in a way that I, so, I mean, th- this is a long way of saying Follies is about people who are aging. Um, yes. And I, I think part of the reason why it continues to ring bells for me is that I do am aging. And every time I come back to this show, I get obsessed with it in a new way because it's it rings so many of my bells in terms of what I think it is to be a person in the world <laughs> with with some degree of music, you know, it's like so much of Follies is about what song are you going to sing? Um, are you are you singing the songs of your youth? Are you singing songs of, uh, you know, what music what music is resonating for you? That's one of the things I want to think about with the show that is now 50 years old, right? So it has its yes. own kind of nostalgic quality to it that it did not have in 1970, whatever it was, 1971, when it opened on Broadway. Um, it's a show that has, I think, aged more successfully yes. than other Sondheim shows. I think we are now able to appreciate Follies in a way that audiences in 1971 were not. And certainly personally, I find new appreciation for Follies every time I get obsessed with it. Yeah, well, let's set the clip then for folks who may not be aware of its history and the plot line and all yep. that sort of stuff. So it's 1971. Yep. So it's a year after company. Year after company. And Although they had started, they had started yeah. work on it, I think, much earlier than company. Sondheim had been tooling around with this stuff since the mid-60s. Uh, finally, by the 70s, it, uh, it's ready for Broadway. Yeah, opened on uh, April 12th, 1971, uh, ran 522 performances, got uh, uh, eight Tonys, mm-hmm. although the best musical of 1971 was Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is hardly ever produced. It was the same people who did Hair, who did oh, that a few years later. Uh-huh. Yeah, 
Yeah. And I think because they didn't recognize hair, they wanted to recognize this. And sure. anyway, eight Tonys, two directors, Hal Prince and Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, who had choreographed company mm -hmm. and then famously went on to choreograph chor chorus and direct line. Uh, chorus line. Bennett also choreographed. Uh, so two directors and Bennett doubling as choreographer also. A hugely extravagant show uh, for its time. Um, one of the costliest shows ever. I mean, yeah, $800,000, I think, $800, almost a million dollars, which was unheard of for Broadway in the 70s. Like that was more 50 money. years later, that would be, I think, $30 million. Yeah, easily, the, easily. That's the so it really is, in some ways, the first mega musical. Yeah, that's a when huge we're cast, about it. Yep. a huge cast, a huge orchestra a huge complicated set. This was big is, yeah. is my point. This was a huge thing. The book, the only collaboration between uh, James Goldman, a uh, fairly famous Hollywood uh, mm -hmm. writer and director, it was first going to be a murder mystery, but then as it morphed and evolved with Goldman and Sondheim and Harold Prince all working together, it became a very minimal story, kind of a concept musical like Company. And about the plot, Stephen Sondheim said this, it's about a party and nothing happens in it at all, except people say hello and have a few drinks and go home. That's entirely the plot. Yep, that's Great. about right. Probably more than a few drinks. I think by the time we first meet these characters, they're already pretty soused. So one way that we could read Follies is kind of like, you know, when we go back and watch Mad Men now and think, oh my God, they just were drunk all the time. I think Follies is about a world in which people are pretty much drunk all the time. Um, so bringing whatever. forward a uh, memory of a line from Little Night Music, oh, how we laughed, oh, how we drank, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, so there's there's lots of drinking that's happening. I think Sondheim tells the story of going with, I think with James Goldman um, to, see, to uh, a first year anniversary party for Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof had been playing for a solid year. They threw a big party on the stage of whatever theater that was, the Imperial maybe. And at a certain point in the party, you know, they're about, they're about an hour into this thing, you know, food is flowing, alcohol is flowing. Probably everybody came to this thing already a couple drinks in. And he and James Goldman, he's like, let's just go down to the orchestra pit and watch. And so they're sitting there in the orchestra pit, watching actors on stage, partying, drinking, not acting, but I'm guessing acting, right? Like there's all kinds of, right? right? Like there's all kinds of performance happening in this party, watching liaisons, uh, you know, kind of in, in media ray, if you like. And at, at a certain point, somebody uh, crumpled up a cocktail napkin, looked at it, didn't know what to do with it. And so just tossed it into the orchestra pit where they were sitting and Sondheim saw it and he's like, and he turned to James Golden and said, that's our show. So I, I, I think that's a little obtuse. I don't quite understand <laughs> what he means. But something, <laughs> something about the cocktail napkin that gets thrown into the orchestra pit because there's no trash can and then the party that just resumes and all of the uh, excess and celebration and then underneath it, all of the ennui of yes. theater people in a time in history in which the theater is changing rapidly. But I mean, we've been talking about this for our whole season, right? Like 1971, we've just come through the 60s. The entire world has just changed, you know, un, uh, in a way that we can never go back to before. Um, so right. Sondheim says, you know, Follies is in many ways about, it's about the thrill of nostalgia, this, uh, looking back at a simpler time, America between the wars is the period we're talking about here, right? End of World War I, to the beginning of World War II. So the teens, 20s, 30s, into the 40s, a little bit into the 50s. I think Follies kind of pushes us uh, a little bit into the 50s. 
looking back at that period with nostalgia, it was simpler, it was sweeter, it was more beautiful. And then also Follies is about the danger of that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One last kiss. I know we're, I know we'll get to, you know, we'll get into the music, but um, that's the, the, the line that rings for me in Follies is uh, never look back. Never right. look back. There's a warning, I think. There's a warning yeah. in Follies about the dangers of nostalgia. Yeah. Yes. It's a, and this shows a plotless narrative. It moves fluidly between past and present. There's ghosts in it. We'll want to talk about ghosts in a little while. And I think the overture you get this sense of foreboding already in the first few notes. This isn't the brassy overture from Gypsy or the kind of cacophony of Bobby Baby and company. You get a sense right from the very first notes that this is, uh, that you're about to enter a world of nostalgia, of sadness, of foreboding, of breakdown. Um, and also of longing. I mean, there's a sweetness to the overture. It, yeah. You know, it is, I, I'm, I'm, I think in the production that I saw on Broadway, and I think this was 2011, my memory is that as, you know, you, you walk into basically a demolished theater. I mean, you know, the, 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 the conceit of, of, the sh- of the plot of Follies is that uh, a theater is about to be torn down and the, um, the, the, the company of, of the Follies company, the guy who ran the theater, the Wiseman girls, uh, they all return for one last night before the theater becomes a parking lot, right? And this is happening all over New York in the 70s. These once grand movie houses, movie palaces, Broadway theaters, vaudeville theaters are being raised to, you know, for parking garages, essentially. So that's the conceit of Follies. And you walk in, as not as member, you walk in, my memory is, to a theater that looks like it's about to be demolished. And then as the orchestra starts playing this, you know, tentative, moody, uh, foreboding music, gradually you start to get not, I mean, it's like the theater starts to kind of, it's, this is almost, um, it's almost Phantom of the Opera a little bit, right? The, yeah, the, yeah. the chandelier that rises and then you <clears throat> see the Grand Opera House kind of come back to life. It's a little bit of that feel, but not quite. Cause what, you know, what, what comes back to life is a theater that is a ghostly theater. There's a memory of what it looked like, but it's not, we're not returning to the fifties. We're coming into the seventies. So a theater that has seen better days. There is this sense of, of longing and nostalgia, but also this real sense of, of threat. Um, it's, a, it's a murder mystery in some ways, yeah. And that's how it began as a murder mystery and then it evolved into this, but there's one way to think about Follies as it still is a mystery play. Yeah. Uh, what happened? What happened to the theater? Yeah. What happened to, uh, and the theater becomes both what it's about, but also a metaphor about what our lives were 
and what they are now. And I think that's kind of the timeless quality, why audiences continue, as you said right at the beginning, it's about aging. It's about looking back at the past, wondering what might have happened. Uh, Sondheim said the show's message was about the collapse of a dream, hmm. both the dream of theatricality, but also the dream of relationships and their possibilities. And he said, the point of the show is that you should use the past to look into the future. Interesting. Yeah. Use yeah. the past to look into the future. So that, I mean, yes. One of the things that I, I mean, we, we, we talked about this a little bit with Gypsy, right? Which is also about the death of vaudeville, right? Although that Gypsy is coming almost 10 years earlier than Follies. But Sondheim, you know, they're, they're one, of the, one of the through lines, I think, for this guy, you know, who famously kind of comes up through the ranks, you know, achieves his, his young success in that old world, you know, West, West Side Story is a, a solid golden age of Broadway musical. So he knows, he, you know, kind of comes into the very end of a world that has been solidly, you know, going on for, for some time before him. He arrives at kind of the, the last party, if you like. And then basically his whole career kind of becomes about trying to, what, trying to connect with that world, trying to resuscitate, not yeah. resuscitate. He's not trying, you know, it's like things were better back then. I don't think Sondheim would have said that. But he is, in no more so than in Follies, right? Returning to the composers and the lyricists who taught him, in some, in some, some, some cases, people he knew, Oscar Hammerstein, Richard Rogers, people he worked with, uh, and in other ways, the composers who shaped his sensibilities, uh, composers of the 20th and Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, E.Y. Romer. I mean, Sondheim says, you know, you could almost, he gives you the scorecard in one of his books, right? Like every song in Follies is doing actually a pretty precise, not spoof, not... Uh, you know, he's not he's not sending up these guys. He's doing pastiche. And he makes a, a real clear distinction between kind of spoofing something, satirizing something and pastiche. Pastiche is a loving homage. Right. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the songs of, of Follies is that they have the, the pastiche material has become the the actual I think about like losing my mind. Right. Which is a pastiche right. of, a, of a kind of Harold Arlen. You know, this is sort of the man I love or the man that got away. Right. But losing my mind has now become like one of the, the kind of best known torch songs, you yes. know, it was written as a pastiche of a torch song. It is now just a solid traditional torch song uh, that Sondheim succeeds in almost making better versions of the stuff he's spoofing than the original, which is such an exactly. interesting, uh, interesting kind of songwriting thing. It's almost an eclipse. Like yeah. you've got the original material and then Sondheim playing with it, pastiching it, as you say, uh, and and what emerges is even better than yeah. what it was he was working with to do a, a type. So, yeah. yeah, we've got he uses the material songs like Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Burton Lane, uh, the Gershwins, Hammerstein, Noel Coward. And the whole thing, not only is it pastiche, but it's also kind of camp. Yeah, there's a really interesting element. I mean, camp actually becomes a, a word that is used, I, maybe not for the first time, um, but what, I think one of the first times that you ever hear the word camp used in a film or on Broadway is in Follies, right? It's in, right. I think it's in I'm Still Here. First, I'm first you're here. another slow-eyed vamp, then someone's mother, then you're camp. And so those yeah. three moments could trace, I mean, certainly the career of an actress, right? You're a slow-eyed vamp, then you're playing mom roles, and then you're just yeah, an, uh, you're a bit of gay, uh, gay spoof culture, right? Like, and yeah. you think about the women who have sung that song, Ann Miller, Elaine Stritch, right? Like how many women's careers could be 
maybe darkly summed up with slow eyed vamp mother camp but right. so they're playing with and camp is a is a relatively contemporary idea in 1970 right susan sontag right. sontag's famous essay on camp is i think 1964 yeah. um so late 60s are when the idea i mean obviously campiness in terms of uh the the drag culture uh there's a lot camp has existed for for several decades, maybe maybe longer than that, uh, before the 70s. But in the 60s and 70s, there begins to be, and this is kind of the rise of postmodernism, right? A, a sort of sustained reflection on what is this particular way of interacting with the recent past? And why is it so compelling, particularly for queer people? What is that about? Yes. Uh, why why do queer people flock to divas? And so we we you know we talked about this with Gypsy. Follies is also a sustained meditation on on camp, on queerness, on uh, on pastiche. But but never it's never just about making fun, and it's never just about nostalgia. There's always this kind of at least in Sondheim's work, there's always this deeper, darker meditation. Like why are we so obsessed with this stuff? What does that tell us about us? Yes. Um, that's, I think that in some, as, I mean, as, as you said, right, the, the, if there's a message in Follies, I always want to be careful about messages, but if there's a, a through line here, it's the past has got to be a means of telling a story about the present and the future. It cannot just be an exercise in escapism, which so often the theater can be. And all of that sort of comes to the, comes to the fore right at the beginning with the song Beautiful Girls. I remember we saw the only production I've seen of uh, Follies was a local amateur theater company, um, great, great folks in Vancouver, and beautiful girls introducing uh, these middle-aged women mm -hmm. as they come down a staircase or down a ramp, whatever way you want to want to want to want to stage that. And and so it's 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 dripping with irony at mm -hmm. one level. Yes. It's kind of my experience of it, seeing it and not really knowing a lot about how that I was kind of embarrassed for the women, you know, because here's this it's a it's like a Irving Berlin song, yep. these beautiful girls. And you get women in their late 40s to mid 50s, a little overweight. Um, yep. They've been around a few times and they're presenting and the women mm -hmm. who did it in, in Vancouver we're doing their best to present themselves with, you know, the fullness of their, yes, it's very stagey glamour. Yep. Yeah. 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 But yeah, there think, it is right there. Yeah. They're all wearing their sashes of their year, yeah. right? Whatever you, they, this is the Wiseman girls, right? So the, I think that the idea here, it's like the Zigfield Follies, right? Every, every year, this impresario would put together this incredible show. This is in, you know, like the 18, the teens, the twenties, the thirties. Uh, and he would find the most beautiful chorus girls he could find uh, and and put them on display. So, you know, here they come, those beautiful girls. In some ways, this is, I mean, it's a little bit of a send up of the commodification of women, we might say, yes. in the mid-century, right? Like all they are, are objects for your gratification. And there's no attempt to really do any, at, you know, at the, at the level of what the song is pastiching, right? Like they're just, they're just objects. Um, but I think, at, as you say, right, at the outset of the show, what Sondheim and his collaborators are doing is inviting you to be uncomfortable, right? Like, yes. here they are, these middle-aged women, and are they, is this ironic? Is this, are we making fun of them? Are we laughing at them? If we are, that feels uncomfortable, because that feels, you know, it's like, here they are trying to reclaim the glamour of their youth. They're no longer glamorous, and yet there's something so interesting about what they are doing, right? Which is kind of saying, like, look at me, I used to be a sexualized object for your gratification, no longer 
does the world want to see me that way? And yet here I am, I'm a person. There, there's a person inside of this dress, as Dot will say to George famously in Sunday in the Park with George, right? Um, I, so there, there is an, I wouldn't call it a feminist angle, but something that's starting to move in the direction of a more complicated look at women and at women's bodies. And I think in some ways, Follies is a show about women. Um, yes. And, it, and it, we, yes. it's almost like we have to move beyond the idea of the ingenue and we're doing it very quickly in Beautiful Girls, setting it out there, right? Here's the, here's the type of the ingenue, right? This young, this young woman with not a thought in her head. And we are naming that, kind of putting it up there. And then we're moving very quickly through it because these are not ingenues. And we're going to learn a little bit about them. Um, some of them more, others of them less. But in some ways, Follies is all about those girls. Here they are, those beautiful girls. And at the end of the show, they're going to leave this stage and we're gonna get, we're gonna have a much deeper sense of what it was like to be those beautiful yes. girls. That's off, here they come, those beautiful girls. That's what you've been waiting for. Nature never fashioned a flower so fair. No rose can compare, nothing respectable, half so delectable. Cheer them in their glory, diamonds and pearls, dazzling jewels by the score. This is what beauty can be. Beauty celestial, the best you'll agree. Oh, for you, these beautiful girls. It's extraordinary and so unusual opening for a show. I mean, yeah. just to again remark on Sondheim's. Uh, capacity uh, throughout his career to take on uncomfortable, difficult subject matter and, 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 and place it in front of an audience. And I think, and I, I think we said, I said this maybe a couple of weeks ago, but in the same way that people didn't first hear Bizet's Carmen, it just sounded dissonant. I think even the melodies that he puts forward in a number of ways are, are difficult in 1971 for audiences to absorb and appreciate. And now in 2022, uh, they're very familiar. They're, yeah, they go Although well. that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Beautiful Girls is a, it's a complete throwback to yeah. like what, I mean, as you say, Irving Berlin, the movie, I, I, I think it's closest analog for most of us is Singing in the Rain, right? That um, yeah. That number where you see the um, the 30s, you know, whatever that is, you know, the a beautiful girl is a great work of art. She's timeless, she's chic, and she also is smart. That 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 uh, <laughs> you know, fetishizing of different women. I think that's you know that. So yeah. he's he's actually not doing anything musically complicated. He's doing something I think for audiences in the 70s, something that would feel very familiar and comfortable yeah. and, right? Oh, we can take it. This is not going to be a complicated, weird, discordant Sondheim show. This is going right. to be an Irving Berlin show. We Fair love enough. this stuff. And then he's going to pull the rug out from underneath you. But I think there's yes. Beautiful Girls is a setup, right? You yeah. think you think this is going to be a trip down memory lane. Hold on to your hats because it is. And that trip's going to get real bumpy. 
Yeah. And then we get the performers all doing their signature tunes. Yeah. So you get, you and get Broadway, ba Broadway Baby is a great song when they did it at one of, I think I've got this right, at one of, one of Sondheim's extravaganzas, a retrospective at Carnegie Hall. I think it was the girl who was playing Annie in yeah. Annie on Broadway who sang Broadway Baby. Uh, bring a whole new bunch of resonance to it, but it's it's a party piece for yep. actors and actresses. My cousin Derek in London, at the drop of a hat, will sing Broadway Baby. You know, he yep. he he just loves it. I'm just a Broadway baby walking off my tired feet. Found in 42nd Street to be in a show. Oh, Broadway baby, learning how to sing and dance, waiting for that one big chance. To be in a show. Oh, gee, I'd like to be on some marquee. All oh, twinkling lights, a spark to pierce the dark from Battery Park to Washington Heights. All my dreams will be repaid Heck, I'd even play the maid To be in a show Say, Mr. Producer I'm talking to you, sir I don't need a lot Only what I got Plus a tube of grease paint and a follow spot. I'm a Broadway baby. Slaving out of five and ten. Dreaming of the great day when I'll be in a show. <laughs> Broadway baby. Making rounds all afternoon Eating out a greasy spoon To save on my dough At my tiny flat There's just my cat A bed and a chair Still, I'll stick it till I'm on a bill
then yeah. you get this nostalgic piece in Buddy's eyes. Yeah. As yeah. He which is kind of which is a shift, back. right? So there's there's two yeah. kinds of music. In, in some ways, the first act of, of Follies, I guess, famously was originally performed without an intermission. So there's not really a true first act, second act. But the first part of Follies, there's there's sort of two kinds of music that we're getting. We're getting the pastiche numbers that are just pure, right? Like exercises in almost academic send up of particular songwriters, right? Sondheim is almost like he's going through his Broadway musicals of the 1930s and, and ticking off the songwriters he loves and pretty precisely, not skewering them, but lovingly pay, pay tribute to them. And then you've got what he calls the book, quote unquote, book songs, right? The songs that are sung by characters. They're not, you know, in Buddy's Eyes is a great one, right? Like it's sung by Sally. Sally is a, a person in the story. She's not, uh, she, is a, she is a former Follies girl. So she's coming to the reunion with her, with her husband insofar as there's a plot to Follies. And there is a little bit of a plot, right? It's these two couples. You've got Phyllis and Ben. Phyllis was a Follies girl. Sally and Buddy, Sally's was a Follies girl. Phyllis and Sally were roommates. We get kind of a sense of, we see their ghosts very early on, right? They were 1941. They're these two Follies girls. They're being courted by these two stage door daddies. I think they're Wall Street execs. So we, very early on, we get a sense of, you know, two couples that double dated. Follies right. girls, waiting around for the girls upstairs is the number where the, the boys remember what it was like to be backstage at the Follies. All the girls would come off. They'd be sitting there waiting for the girls. It's actually a really adorable number because they get into a big argument about like where they're going to go to dinner. We want to go dancing at whatever it is to Joe's. It, I mean, it's a very, it's a very sweet number. But those are, those are book numbers, right? Those are songs right. sung in the context of a musical, which is about actual people. So there the conceit is this is just a normal musical. These characters are going to sing their thoughts. And also we're watching performers do their former numbers. So yes. at the outset, those are two separate worlds, right? There's performers who are doing their novelty numbers and there's characters who are singing their thoughts to one another through song because this is a musical. As Follies continues, that distinction is going to fall apart, right? In some ways, Follies right. is about losing the, the difference between art and life is one way we might say. But at the outset, it's, it's firmly in place. And In Buddy's Eyes is, I think, one of the kind of the great, right? So this is not a pastiche necessarily, although it starts to feel a little bit like a, uh, a tribute to a different, different kind of thing. But, but this is Sally, a, a woman, singing about what it's like to be married to her husband. Now, she's singing it to the guy that she's always held a candle for. And we know right off the bat, Sally has come to this reunion to reconnect with the guy she wished she had married, who is now married yeah. to what was her best friend. This is Ben, right? She's always held a candle for Ben. I think we're meant to say like, and as, as the show goes on, we realize, oh, she's not just pining after Ben. She's obsessed with Ben in a way that like, she's maybe a little bit unhinged. Uh, there's, there's, there's a deep kind of fixation on Ben and what he represents. That ultimately kind of, I think Ben kind of gets rooted up by this. But here she is, right at the outset of the thing, flirting with the guy that she, you know, used to be, is still kind of in love with, used to have a thing with, but basically telling him how great she's got it, right? In Buddy's eyes, I'm young, I'm beautiful. And underneath it, the whole song is about like how great it is to be married to this guy. And underneath it all, we get the sense, oh, she is telling herself a story that she does not believe. We're out in Phoenix now. We've got this huge old house. Oh, it's a different life from yours. You wouldn't like it, but you're right. It's fun. Can you imagine it at my age having fun? But most of all, what makes my life so good is Buddy. Life is slow, but it seems exciting cause Buddy's there. Gourmet cooking and letter writing and knowing Buddy's there. Every morning, don't faint, I tend the flowers. Can you believe it every weekend? 
I paint for umpteen hours And yes, I miss a lot living like a shut-in No, I haven't got cooks and cars and diamonds Yes, my clothes are not Paris fashions But in bodies Life is so, you know, oh, it's so boring. Every morning, don't faint. I tend the flowers. Can you believe it? Every weekend, I paint for umpteen hours. Yes, it's pretty boring. Yes, it's not very exciting. But in Buddy's eyes, I'm young. I'm beautiful. <laughs> She's clinging desperately to this fantasy right. of herself. We, we find out later on, no, Sally's an alcoholic. Sally's life is miserable. Sally hates the man she's married to. She is not in a happy marriage. She's, a, she's drinking a lot. Uh, to compensate for the fact that her life is pretty unhappy. And she's fixed all of her fantasies on this, you know, this, this ghost, basically. So Folly's literally like, like we see, we see Sally singing to Ben, but right behind Ben is the ghost of Ben. She's really singing to the ghost of Ben. And later, Ben's going to do the same thing. He's going to sing a love song to Sally, but we'll realize, oh, he's singing it to the ghost of, I mean, the ghost, the actor, the young actress playing Sally at, you know, 19 is standing right there. Ben will sing that song to the ghost of Sally, not to the actual Sally. None of these characters are connecting with one another, you know, actually they're connecting with Mm. their memories, with their ghosts of what used to happen. And this is where Michael Bennett's choreography was in the original. And I think many of the productions that have continued have used and, and, enhanced his choreography, but having these sort of in gray, almost silhouetted characters at first who become more and more alive, uh, more and more more real. And I think what it does is, is set up really the interior world of everybody who's watching it. Yeah. Because we all are living in the now, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, you, you, you drink your cup of tea, you're in the now. Um, you go for a walk, you walk. Um, so, I mean, the now. But for most of us, the now is inhabited with memories, uh, with ghosts. And, and I don't think, just to be clear, we're not talking about the supernatural world here. We're talking about a psychological reality of the past that we we carry with us, eh? Yeah. And and Follies puts that on stage. Puts that on stage, literalizes it in a really yeah. I mean, and no, I mean, no world I think is <laughs> no world is better for illustrating the power of ghosts in the theater. Every theater that I know is haunted by by yes. something. I, I and I'll asterisk that by saying I think the other place where we experience this phenomenon is church. Yes. No place is better than church for thinking about the ghosts, right? So you and I both have served congregations that existed for a long time before we ever got there. So we yes. have a thing or two to say about, I mean, I sometimes walk through Kempton Hall on my way home. There's, there's two portraits that I walk by on my way to my car. One is the man for whom the hall was named, the guy who built it in the 30s, Dr. Kempton. And right across from Dr. Kempton is the bishop at the time, Bishop Dagwell. They were best friends. Bishop Dagwell was the one who got Dr. Kempton. I mean, I have, I have a lot of questions about the nature of 
the, this relationship. I probably couldn't say that on the podcast. Um, that's a, to get, buy me a drink sometime. I'll tell you about that. But I walk by the portraits of these guys. The ghost of Dr. Kempton, who died, I think, in the 60s, late 60s, maybe early 70s, is palpable to me at Trinity Cathedral, right? Like, yeah. I feel like he might as well be walking around. Uh, yeah. off, not always in, you know, like, I've never, I've never, let me just be really clear. This is not a ghost story. I've never, I've never, right. as far as I know, I've never had a supernatural experience like this. But uh, to your point, theaters, churches, organizations with a past, organizations where the past is a part of what we live with in a very visceral way in the present, they have ghosts and we're always interacting to a certain degree with, with the ghosts of ourselves, of people we never knew, uh, people we did know. That, that I think in some ways is what Follies is about. Yeah, and, and, and theologically, you know, uh, in church land, we talk about, interestingly, Follies is about dreamland, and we'll come to that. And I think it is really about a, a dreamscape. But in, in church, we talk about the communion of saints yeah. and affirm in lovely ways, mm -hmm. lovely ways about the ongoing presence of those we love but see no longer, people who have died. In the, in the Jewish tradition, uh, there's this phrase that you would say always at a funeral, which is, may their memory be a blessing, mm -hmm. right? May their memory be a blessing. And I, I, I think it's a profound, I love it, um, as so much of Jewish liturgy really appeals to me. But I think the notion of a memory being a blessing is because the opposite is so and be true. Yeah. Well, and case. Judaism knows this. I say I think better than Christianity does. Right. There's a, a robust theological reflection on memories are not always for a blessing. And those yeah. whom we have lost have power to um, to not be blessings. I mean, in some ways, yes. like, you know, any any sort of pagan. I, I don't want to lump Judaism with paganism. That, that's different. But any 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 folk, any religion that still has some folk elements to it knows this. The Day of the Dead in more Catholic yeah. traditions. Right. Uh, Dia, Dia de los Muertos is this idea that like, you know, the dead wreak havoc if not appeased. Now, that's I, I don't you know, I don't want to go too far down that road, except to say that I've spent enough time in churches to have a deep appreciation for some of those aspects of what we might call quote unquote folk religion. I think petitioning for memories to be a blessing is absolutely something worth praying for. I have experienced, as you say, the, the power of the communion of saints. When you have that palpable sense of, oh, the dead are really not that far away. The, the line that separates this world from the next is actually pretty dang thin. I don't need yes. to, I don't need to know, I don't need to have to have a scientific or a theological, like I don't need precision in that, right? Like, are there ghosts? Are there whatever? Like, that's not interesting to me. What I can tell you is, the past is present in all kinds of ways, in ways that can be very destructive and in ways, I mean, I think to, to your point and to where the show is saying, in ways that can be blessings. How can we use the past as a way of moving us forward as, as, a, as a means of blessing and not a means of, um, of curse, which it can be? Absolutely can be. And I, you know, I think about the, the song that's one of my favorites from Follies. They're all my favorite from Follies, but Losing My Mind is really about the grief that comes when a relationship ends, either because of separation or, uh, or death, right? Mm -hmm. And Sondheim's simple, assertive sentences in this, you know, the sun comes up, I think about you. The coffee cup, I think about you. For any of us who have lived through, and I think all of our friends who listen to the podcast have, are probably here, the, the breakdown of a relationship or the death of a loved one, mm -hmm. 
know immediately the experience that losing my mind describes beautifully uh, in text. And then if the text weren't enough to, to, to bring tears to your eyes, the the tune and it's mm-hmm. a it's a third oh, song it's and it's also beautiful like all you have to what i what i love about losing my mind and you hear it before the actress even opens her mouth is this um the saxophone riff that comes you yes. know da, 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 and then you hear this like and it's like a throwback to i mean i could even tell you all of the associations but it's this very kind of jazzy mournful chanteuse midnight you know lounging on the piano and you hear the sax riff and then sally you know sally this you know frumpy we just talked about her right she's this kind of unhappy blousy broad alcoholic life falling apart and she suddenly appears on stage and she's glamorous and she's beautiful she's judy garland in uh in a star is born she's gonna sing the man the man that got away and then she proceeds to sing what for my money is actually i think one of the best torch songs ever written bar none right written as a send-up of the torch song but losing my mind has become i think maybe the quintessential torch song you said you loved me or were you just being kind or am i losing my It is so effective because as you say, it's so well done. It's heartfelt. It's not a, it's not a satire. It's a pastiche. It's, it's using something that we love, which is the phenomenon of the middle-aged diva who's going to uh, invite us to connect with love that was intense and passionate and that has been lost to us. Yeah. So, but also 
glorying in the theatricality of it, right? I mean, it's yes. so interesting because theatrically it works so well. I mean, you know, like, why are we so obsessed with women who can do this, you know? And yet also the way that it functions in the, in the sense of the plot is by the end of the thing, you realize like, oh, it is Sally playing a role, but then you see Sally underneath and she is actually like, she's having a breakdown, right? This, yeah. this person is actually losing her mind. Some actors really choose to kind of play that part of it up. Others kind of, you know, keep it at the level of, you know, she's, she's a Chanteuse, this is a performance. But I think the way that we're meant to understand Losing My Mind is it's a beautiful song about a lost relationship. It is also a way of saying, these people are not okay. Um, right. the, 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 the actress, the actor who is singing this song is not, you know, uh, not okay. There is there is something very dark happening on here. If if we if we become obsessed with people in the way that Sally is obsessed with Ben, we we might very well end up losing our minds. Well, it's really about about grief. It's about it's grief. about it's about the power of grief, about the universality of grief. Yeah. I think it's part of the reason for the resilience and the endurance of of follies is it just channels that i mean sometimes i stand in the middle of the floor not going left not going right yep. anyone who's grieved uh, a relationship lost a loved one knows that moment maybe it wasn't standing in the middle of the floor not going left not going right mm -hmm. but sondheim's lyrics just capture and and express that I mean, in, in grief, that absolute uh, feeling that you are losing your mind, yeah. that there's something that's deeply wrong, that nothing is going, uh, nothing's going to change. And just back to our previous conver uh, uh, conversation piece, you will be living with the ghost, yeah. the ghosts of this for as long as you live. Yep. And then one other layer on top of that, <laughs> you know that you will be a ghost in somebody else's life eventually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, there's the layers of that. I mean, and, 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 and more so now, I mean, I think about like, you know, it, it probably worked well in 1970 when nobody ever heard this song before, but we knew what was being sent up. Now the song itself has become iconic. So you get the phenomenon of, you know, there's the layer of the song itself. There's a layer of Sally, the character who's singing it. And now there's the layer of like, we're watching Barbara Cook. And so much of this song is now associated with people like Barbara Cook, Bernadette Peters, uh, Julia McKenzie in the UK, right? There's a whole cadre now of women who have sung this song, made it part of their cabaret acts. So, you know, like when Bernadette Peters sings this song, I'm thinking about the character Sally, who I saw, I saw her play Sally on Broadway. I'm also like thinking you. about like, I know that Bernadette Peters lost her husband of many years, very, he, he was quite young. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think he was in his fifties, but you know, like they, they, you know, like had a lot of time. I think he was in a plane accident. So this is so. a woman who herself has experienced that kind of grief. Now she's a good actress. I don't assume that she's processing her grief about her husband every time she does losing my mind, but why she's, I mean, the reason why Bernadette Peters is a good actor is because like, I, I feel like I'm connecting with that part of her as right. an individual when she sings this song because she's able to make herself that vulnerable. Is she actually like on the verge of actually having a breakdown? I don't think so. I think she's an actor who's very much in control of her instrument, but she allows you to believe that at the, you know, if she just tipped over a little bit, that person would have a breakdown. And that's actually what happens at the end of Follies, right? Uh, the, last, the last kind of pastiche number is Ben's. Live, laugh, love. It's a kind of Fred Astaire send up, right? He's the he's the urban sophisticate. Learn how to live. Learn how to laugh. He's kind of and he and he he goes up. 
he forgets he forgets the lines. That's the sign that like he's having a breakdown. And Sondheim says, you know, when when this first happened on Broadway, audiences assumed that the actor playing the role of Ben could not remember the like it actually was right. that moment where the distinction between the world of the follies, the, the the world of 1970 and these characters that we were watching, and then the world of the actors who were playing this role in a Broadway show called Follies, all three of those layers got mushed together. Uh, and so it really becomes this interest. I mean, it's about theater, right? It's about yeah. it's about actors. It's about where does the line, where is the line between a role that you're playing, a person you are, and then the person you are, you know, alone at night with your lover, maybe with your therapist, right? Like I, I think about this like in terms of clergy, right? Like who are we when we're preaching? Who are we when we're one-on-one with our in our office with somebody? Who are we on a call like this when we're two colleagues talking with one another? And then who am I going to be in an hour when I go meet with my therapist? Right? Yeah. Like, where are the lines between the public version of ourselves, the 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 pastiche number that we know how to sing because it's our job, who we actually are? Uh, Follies kind of breaks down all of those boundaries, so you really get a sense of like people who are actively losing their minds. They happen to be actors in a show which adds this really interesting layer to, I mean, what do we want to say? The phenomenon of grief, the phenomenon of aging, uh, the phenomenon of a mental breakdown. I mean, in some ways, like Follies is about four people who have a kind of collective nervous breakdown. And then the lights come up for the first time we see, you know, the back wall of the theater, we see the, you know, the world beyond, it's morning. And these two couples who have come into this experience, this reunion, this nostalgia trip, leave together very chastened. Um, and the show is real ambiguous in terms of like, what do we think is going to happen for these two couples who did not break up? And yet, oh, God, they just they just went pretty deep in terms of the grief and the regrets that they're um, all four of them are carrying. Yeah, it's really inst- I mean, it, to say it's about something is, is wrong, but it, it, it a lot of ways it's about failure yeah. and about endurance beyond the challenges that come, the difficulties that come, the shit we have to endure, uh, the ghosts that accompany us every day in our life, the heartbreaking grief that makes us lose our minds momentarily and puts us deeper. And of course, Sondheim has a song about endurance, Uh maybe even about resurrection. And (laughs) I think you think it is, and I I agree, uh, if the 11 o'clock number means the big number that you come to the theater hardly, and for me, I can hardly wait to hear it. I'm, and I'm often so excited that I miss it yep. because I'm, uh, but uh, that that song in Follies, I think is, I'm still here. I agree. It comes at the wrong place in terms of the, right? Like it doesn't come in the 11 o'clock slot. And actually I wouldn't want it in the 11 o'clock slot. I'm moving, losing my mind and learn, Lynn left lover in the 11 o'clock slot. They belong there, but I'm still here. At least I want to argue. This is my 2022 thesis on what I think Follies is about for Nathan LaRue as he prepares to turn 40. So I, I'm aware that this may have a lot, this may say a lot about me and very little bit about the material. If, if there's, um, if there's a moment of redemption in what is otherwise a pretty dark and unremitting picture of uh, mid midlife breakdowns and deaths of marriages and ideals. Um, I think I'm still here. I want to point to as like, this is the way through, right? Maybe, uh, maybe not for these four characters, maybe for these four characters. I don't know. It's like, there you get, you know, in the middle of the thing, you get this woman who has seen it all, right? And she gives you a potted history of the whole period that we're pastiching in this show, right? Yes. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's almost, it's, it's a, you know, a, a subsequent generation would do, we didn't start the fire, but Sondheim got to it first before Billy Joel ever did. And it's, I'm still here, right? It's his version of, you know, name checking 
BB's bathysphere and Brenda Frazier and you know the Lindbergh twins and all and, the kind of and references. Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> right, right. Putting um, those two together, crazy. Yep. She, she, and she and she got through both of them, right? Both Herbert and yeah. J. Edgar, two different experiences. <laughs> and and the song has, I mean, in some ways, like it functioned. It was Yvonne. He wrote it for Yvonne DiCarlo, uh, famously. This, you know, who most of us now know as as the the mother on the Munsters. But you know, in 1970, she was a she was a, a B movie star, right? People knew who Yvonne DiCarlo was. She could sing. She actually had some pipes. So Sondheim said, "I got I had to write her a really good number. I knew I needed something that was a, a showstopper. I needed a showstopper for Yvonne DiCarlo. So uh, talk with her. I think he he said." Uh, the, the song in some ways is a sort of thin, it's, it's riffing on the life of Joan Crawford, right? So we, we might sort of imagine a Joan Crawford type, you know, a leggy dancer in the 20s who goes to Hollywood in the 30s, has great success. And then, as we said, you know, like she sums up her career in a devastating line. First, you're another slow-eyed vamp, then someone's mother, then you're camp. Then you're camp. Now, I'm still here. I want to say, like, that defines camp. Right. There is no there is nothing in the show that is more camp. I mean, the, I, I think about the the Christopher, the Christopher Isherwood quote is the one that I sent you. And I, I wrote it down because I thought it was so good. Christopher Isherwood trying to define camp says you thought these two characters talking to each other in Berlin. I think you thought it meant a swishy little boy with peroxide hair dressed in a picture hat and a feather boa pretending to be Marlena Dietrich. You can call that low camp, he said. High camp is the whole emotional basis for ballet, for Baroque art. You're not making fun of it. You're making fun out of it. You're expressing what's basically serious to you in terms of fun and artifice and elegance. He says Baroque art is basically camp about religion. The ballet is camp about love. I'm still here, and that, that's the end of the issue quote. So I'm gonna add to that and say, I'm still here, I think is camp about Hollywood, it's camp about show business, but then it's camp about women. It's camp about, I mean, I wanna say queer people. It's camp about everybody who's ever had to fight to be seen. Yeah. And, it, and it becomes actually, I mean, this is where I think like, I think this song is kind of about resurrection. It's about endurance, right? Like, I mean, and you think about, I, I mean, my argument here, we're going deep into my nerdiness. I, I will die in a ditch that Elaine Stritch in red at the, at the Stephen Sondheim 80th birthday concert, right? Remember the ladies in red? We've shown this yes, 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 before, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. It's, and interestingly, three of the, you know, I think it's six performers, three of those songs are Follies numbers, right? Maren Mazzi yeah. does Losing My Mind beautifully. Donna Murphy does an iconic uh, production of um, Leave You, How Could I Leave You. I think it's one yes. of the best versions of that song I've ever seen. But then I think it's the I think it's the, the end of it, right? Elaine Stritch, who is, I, by this point, this is what, this is 2012, 13, I don't know. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. Elaine Stritch, who now is no longer, right, the kind of glamorous Elaine Stritch of company 1970s Ladies Who Lunch. Patti Lapone does Ladies Who Lunch with Elaine Fabulous Stritch right there, story. which, I mean, you've yeah. got to, I don't understand how you do Ladies Who Lunch in front of Elaine Stritch. That's got to be a um, Does anyone still wear a hat? And she's sitting there in a hat. Exactly. With a hat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, the, the wrap up of this, you know, incredible bevy buffet of beautiful girls, we might say, yes. is Elaine Stritch, who gets up to do I'm Still Here. So she's doing it as Elaine Stritch. She changes some of the lines. I lived through Barbara Walters, she says, not yes. Brenda Frazier. It's, but it's also like, so she's bringing, and this is what I think Follies does, right? It brings all of the layers together. She's a character. She's Elaine Stritch, the character who Elaine Stritch kind of plays and every Elaine Stritch thing she does. But she's also this woman who I think is getting ready to turn 80, singing yes. to a songwriter who is turning 80, who has given her all of her best material. So in some ways, this is Elaine Stritch's thank you to Stephen Sondheim. Here's what you wrote 30 years ago, 40 years ago for Yvonne DiCarlo, but she's making it hers. And I think this song is about like 
you know, come hell or high water, my God, we're alive. It's being alive. I think this is this is oh, a, a nice. woman's version of being alive, right? Yeah. Like, um, and and with no recourse to the men in my life, although she names them. I may, I, you know, I met a big financier, so I'm here, right? But nothing about how this woman defines herself is the men in her life. It's the fact that she's still standing. I got through all of last year and I'm here. Yeah. And you yeah. see Elaine, I mean, like she's like, she starts bouncing, like jumping up and down on the stage, right? Like, and there's not, like, she's not kidding, right? This is not, she's not making fun. She's not laughing. She's deadly serious. I'm still here. I'm yeah. alive, God damn it. Like yeah. nobody can take that away from me. And I, even as I, even as I'm describing it, like there's something so, um, there's something so galvanizing to me about that. There's something yes. so powerful to me about that. Like yes. that, that's the best I think that this show has to offer in terms of there's God, right? Yeah. This is, this is, this is the theological power of endurance. Um, well, come hell yeah. high water. Um, I love that. Good times and bum times. I've seen them all and my dear. I'm still here Plush velvet sometimes Sometimes just pretzels and beer But I'm here I've stuffed the dailies In my shoes Strummed ukuleles Sung the blues Seen all my dreams disappear But I'm here I've slept in shanties, guest of the WPA, but I'm here. Danced in my scanties, three bucks a night was the pay, but I'm here. I've stood on bread lines with the best, watched while the headlines did the rest. In the depression, was I depressed? Nowhere near. I met a big financier, so I'm here. I've been through Gandhi, Wally, and Windsor's affair. But I'm here, Amos and Andy. And platinum hair But I'm here I got through Amy's Irish Rose Five Dion babies Major bowls Had heebie-jeebies Four BBs Bathosphere I lived through Barbara Walters Gotten through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover. Gee, that was fun in the half. When you've been through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover, anything else is a laugh. And and you know, I think one of the great deficits of the Christian story is that Jesus dies when he's 33 and uh, rises again. But we don't have a lot of stories in the New Testament anyway about endurance over the long haul. Maybe Paul, maybe John on Patmos, 
they're here and there. There's lots in the first in Hebrew Bible. Yeah. You know, uh, they all live to a grand old age. <laughs> no wildly, one lived like 800, right? Yeah. yeah, wildly, wildly exaggerated. But I think it's why the history of the saints gets to be so important in the Christian way yeah. of these, of, of, of holy people who live and have seen so much over the course of their lives and still faithful, still believing in God, but not out of a sense of, oh, you know, the kind of truisms just to, that, that have often accompanied evangelical Christianity with, with like, you know, accept Jesus into your life and everything will be better. Well, actually, the spiritual journey, the life journey, there's no immunity from grief, from suffering, from all of that. And I think I'm still here kind of celebrates, yeah, over the long haul. Um, uh, been through it all, uh, and I'm here. Uh, here I am, yeah. And it's not saying everything's great, right. but just being alive is enough, right? Like for this moment, here I am. And you know, at the level of like, I'm a performer, you're all watching at me. And in a minute, if I do my job right, you are going to jump to your feet and cheer, right? Like yeah. there's something about like, yeah, I'm still here as a person, as a character, as an actor, but we're still here as an audience, right? Like there's something about this is, I mean, to your point about the community of saints, right? Like none of us exist. In, like a performer can do I'm still here in her bedroom with nobody watching. That's not actually what this song is about. This right. song is about the power of the theatrical experience, an audience who is absolutely eating up with a spoon, everything this woman is, you know, is like, and this is a, you know, it's a, if it's a language, it's a woman in her eighties, you know, she's not not yeah. a beautiful girl. There's nothing uh, conventionally sexy about her. There's something deeply sexy about her. But it's it's, it's <laughs> you know it's all it's through all of these you know it's it's slow eyed vamp mother camp right like it's queer sexuality. It doesn't it's not commercialized, but it's theater. It works, and the audience yeah. is absolutely there. So there is resurrection in that moment. And maybe that you know maybe that actor goes off stage, collapses and has a drink because you know she's still an alcoholic. I don't know. Doesn't matter in the moment. Something amazing and it's a moment of grace right it's that happens in that in that in that moment um yeah so there you have it in the middle of the show right this dark kind of meditation on dysfunction has i think one of sondheim's most successful moments of resurrection right there at the heart of it well maybe it was because i went down a evangelical rabbit hole then i began thinking about how they uh in lots of big big box churches the praise songs get mashed together and what came just to, to, to mind involuntarily was singing, I'm still here, followed by, here I am, Lord, right? Uh, <laughs> is but, it I, Lord? <laughs> well, but I mean, I think this huh. is the, the real grace of, yeah. of the Christian way, as I understand it, which is complete honesty about oh. the journey, right? And the social upheaval and all that stuff the shit that we go through mm. in a life and here i am available oh that's to be an interesting instrument, yeah an because instrument i mean you think about like love and what goodness. do the what do the what do the great characters in scripture say when they are called by god jeremiah says it mary says it in hebrew it's hinene here i am right yeah. that's the line when god comes calling for you samuel samuel right and the, is it eli are you calling me right like and that's what samuel says it's what jeremiah says when god puts the flaming coal on his lips it's what mary says when the angel says hey girl you're gonna have a baby and it's gonna like ruin your entire life here i, I am. am and I'm really still here i'm still here 80 yeah. years later i mean like what a beautiful song for a prophet to sing to her god 
Yeah. I'm but, still uh, here. And that's, and that's but, Elaine Stritch singing it to Sondheim, right? Like, yeah. that's, a, that's a prophet singing it to her God. I'm still here, Steve. You want to write me a new number? Here I am. Maybe, you know, it's coming up to Candlemas. You've got a couple days here and we're recording this. If you get to preach at Candlemas, you could have Anna, the prophet in the temple singing, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see Elaine Stritch's Anna, the prophetess. <laughs> What's this goddamn baby you're putting in my hand? What shit is this? You gotta be fucking kidding me. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm still here. I'm still well, here. Follies. I Follies. mean, we've mm. only scratched the surface. Yep. It, it, uh, it works. It works. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die in a ditch over this show. I, I really do think this, is, I mean, you know, it keeps being, being tweaked at the, the, the reputation of Follies. It's a, it's a show that's almost impossible to get right. It's been tweaked a gazillion times there, you know, it's always a problematic piece. I think, gosh, I, Sondheim is doing something. I mean, he's, you know, he'll pick up some of these threads. We're going to, we're going to get to continue to play out some of these ideas throughout his work. I think Follies is, it's a, it's a masterpiece. I just think it's a masterpiece. And some of the best songs ever. Yep. Until next time. Until next time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.